Dave Matthews Band Live. This Saturday, Jiffy Lube Live. On sale now at LiveNation.com. Part of the Mattress Warehouse Concert Series. Three, two, one. Never has there been a better time to be alive in human history. If you're not feeling it, you must discover why. Join Matthew Bolton in developing and applying a framework of objective optimism toward a flourishing life of meaning, health, and happiness. Here's your host, Matthew Bolton. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mr. Brightside. I'm Matthew Bolton. To regular listeners, I know it's been a while, but I can at least say that I've been enjoying my life on another level working at the pace I am now. And I do think that it will make for better content as well. Case in point is today, as we have a guest who is well worth the wait. To those of you who are new to the show, lured by our superb guest, I refer you to the backlog of episodes where you might find a title or several that appeal to you. Have a listen, see what the show is about, and do let me know what you think. Now, as to today's guest... While I said it's been worth the wait, as to our subject, there really is no time to lose. Particularly if you're a parent or teacher, but even for any of us who are just concerned with the future generation and the society they will help build and in which we all must live, there is no subject more important than education and raising children. And then, not just for the sake of but for the sake of the children themselves and their own well-being and happiness. Lisa Van Dam, educator and parent, which you'll see are both understatements, has answers that stem from an approach which I might describe as rationally passionate or passionately rational. I can't decide which is more appropriate. In any case, you'll hear the clear thinking down to the root of each issue, and the passionate love for her children and students shines through in our interview. I'm sure that after hearing Lisa's unique approach to the subject dearest to any parent, you will be wondering where you can find a teacher like her, or a school like hers, or how you might also apply some of her insights toward being the best parent you can be for your child, and more, how you can appreciate and enjoy the journey of parenting even more deeply than you might. I want to make a note here before we go in that in her brief bio I present, I failed to mention her new parenting podcast, which I was amazingly somehow unaware of. You'll hear more about that in the interview, but it's curious to mention because I had been for a long time so taken by her informal posts on parenting, which is part of what led me to invite her on, that it's no surprise to me that she's been asked to host such a thing. You listen in here, and you'll know why too. So, shut up and let me listen already, you say? You're right. Let's get to it. Hi, everybody. Welcome now to our interview. I'm joined by Lisa Van Dam. Lisa is the founder and director at Van Dam Academy, which is known for producing some of the best academically prepared students in Orange County, California. She is also the school's literature teacher. She is a mother of four or a mother of two twice, and will Lisa tell us uh, what she means by that, and the author of a parenting blog, which isn't quite a blog, and again, perhaps you'll tell us uh, what, what, uh, why it's presented the way it is, in which she shares delightful and illustrative personal stories of her and her kids, accompanied by the well-articulated lessons she draws from them. She is the creator of an app called Read With Me, which is aimed to help adults connect intellectually and emotionally with the classics, and is also, amidst all this, the host and guide of a Facebook community I've been enjoying this year, in which we read a chapter a day of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, uh, Lisa adding her own commentary in each daily guide, and then anyone welcome to share their own insights. Uh, in the unabridged version, by the way, there are 365 chapters, so you can do the convenient math there, and it's been an, a spiritually rewarding to set each of my days off this year in that Hugo-esque world. Uh, so shout out, Lisa, to all our uh, Les Mis peeps. 
uh, who are listening. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lisa has been on my shortlist from the uh, moment I first thought of having a podcast, so I'm very pleased to at last welcome the sagacious and fabulous Lisa Van Dam. Lisa, thanks for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Not sure I deserve quite that glowing an introduction, but. <laughs> well, I guess we'll see. <laughs> and when I, I listen, I, when I listen to your list of everything I'm doing, it sounds crazy, but, but it's all fun. <laughs> It may be, you might have to take another look at it and, it's in, you know, and, and set, take care of yourself. Yeah. But, uh, all right, so we're going to move right into, as I'll have said on the intro that I'll record la uh, later, and you'll have heard already, listeners, um, we're going to hit some education, uh, questions regarding education, but uh, of course, a lot of that's well documented in the A Little Candle documentary on YouTube, we'll mention, uh, her, the website, your uh, and then your Van Dam Academy YouTube channel, which has a lot of uh, wide ranging videos explaining a lot of stuff. But there's still yes. some things I think it would be good to put out here and sure. some things that I would like elaboration on that I saw. Um, and then, of course, parenting uh, that was more off the cuff, the, all those posts. And I think uh, we'll do a very good service here to flesh them out and record, make a record of them here. So sounds great. So regardless of what we cover today, uh, listeners, my message is go watch A Little Candle on YouTube documentary uh, on VDA and I'll, on Van Dam Academy, and I'll ask you about that a little later. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to set us off here, can you please tell us what is Van Dam Academy and a bit of the history of it? Sure. So my career in education started when I was pursuing a master's in education at Penn State University and thinking at the time that I would teach literature to high school students. That, that was my plan. I had before that been a philosophy major, thought about getting a PhD in philosophy, found the philosophy, philosophy departments to be absolutely insane and utterly detached from reality. So that quickly became, it quickly became clear that was not what I wanted to do. But I found that I could discuss a lot of the philosophic themes that interested me in a more real life, real world way through the medium of literature. So I was planning to teach literature in high school. And one day I came home to a message on my answering machine from someone asking, uh, they had gotten, um, in touch with me through a mutual friend and asking me if I would be interested in being a homeschool teacher to their children. I was 24 years old at the time. This was something I had never heard of as a practice. It, it was utterly out of the blue, not, not something I'd considered as a career path. And I stayed up all night thinking about it and decided in the morning that 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 was my job. I was, I was going for this. I was so excited at the prospect of reflecting on my own educational experience, thinking about what was missing from it and what had been so unsatisfying about it to me, and then trying to provide for this small group of students what I wish I had had in my schooling experience. Now, in retrospect, that seems, uh, that seems bold beyond my present imaginings. <laughs> yeah. At 24, I'm going to go into a class of kids of multiple ages and teach them all subjects. But the prospect of it was just so exciting to me that I thought, well, I'll draw on the best resources I can. I will stay at least a day ahead of them in the curriculum and I'll just dive in and, and see what I can do. Unfortunately, I was hired for that job and that's where that's where the that's where my career started. All right. Well, excellent. Um, how about this? We'll start off broad. What is the fundamental goal of education broadly? Well, just starting me off simple, huh? <laughs> well, 
there are lots of ways I could I could go about answering that. The thing I will that I'll say from my perspective is that my goal is not to raise the child. I think schools uh, take too much take the role of parents to the children and try to address all aspects of life. And I regard our task as much more delimited than that. So I think my it's still very abstract and it's still very complex, but I, I think our goal is the intellectual and conceptual development of the child. Um, and that already delimits it from a lot of the, of the tasks that schools typically take on. And the next step in defining that is what are the intellectual skills that, that a child requires to become a mature, capable, informed, functional, flourishing adult? And that's something, uh, obviously, is not something I could single-handedly identify. We're drawing upon the influences of culture over centuries to answer that question. Yeah. Um, but the term that I like to use comes from Arthur Bester. Uh, in his book, Educational Wastelands. And what he says is that there are certain intellectual disciplines that over time, as human knowledge has advanced, we've sort of categorized the type of knowledge and the type of intellectual skills that each of us requires into intellectual disciplines. So science is its own discipline. There's a certain way of, uh, of answering scientific questions, of, of arriving at fundamental truths about the physical world, and that is its own discipline. There's a discipline of history. There's a way of looking at uh, what has happened across the whole of human history, of identifying themes, of finding ca cause and effect. And it's a different sort of skill set and approach to thought than you would find in the sciences. Um, in literature, that's a, so. Anyway, there's, there's a, a certain set of intellectual disciplines that we want to make sure the kids have mastery of, and that's what we focus on in the hours of our school day. So the short list would be writing and all the uh, corollary, corollary skills of writing, vocabulary, grammar, um, and then uh, history, literature, science, mathematics, I think I covered them all. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's what we are trying to focus on as our um, focus of emphasis during the day, and then the rest of life is something that's best sought and guided by parents and outside of school. Sure. All right. We'll see about if there's something specific on that a little later. I'm not sure. Um, now, something I've seen there uh, a specific point is we don't talk about college here. Can you explain yeah. what that means? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think I wrote a blog about that. That's probably what gives rise to the question. And, and if I recall that the impulse to write that blog came out of an experience I had when I was taking that first group of students that I was teaching in the home and helping them to find a high school. So I only uh, was their teacher through ju the junior high years, and then they, they needed to find a high school after that. So I involved myself in this process and went to visit the high schools with some of them to try to find one that was a good fit. And I recall taking one of them to a local, private, rigorous academic high school and having her come in to seek information about what the curriculum would be like and what her school experience would be. And the first thing they started to tell her about in this tour was 
what AP classes she would have to take, that she would need to be part of the inter International Baccalaureate Program, how, um, how many rich resources and college counselors and everything about the description of what her experience would be was focused on how they were going to get her into the best colleges which made the entire four years of high school nothing more than a means to the end of college it was nothing about personal enrichment it was nothing about what she was going to learn from the subjects it was nothing about the pedagogical approach it was nothing about the content it was nothing about the actual experience and the value to her as an individual it was all how we're going to help you here to cultivate a resume that will get you into harvard and i just looked over and saw her absolutely wilt at this description she had come out of her experience with me with a love of learning with a personal attachment to the process of learning with a belief that that uh, her fulfillment was the goal of all this learning and now she's just being told it's all it's all a means to an end and what will prove your success is whether or not you get into cornell so um i at that time vowed <laughs> that we would have a principle that we very strongly discourage even discussion of of uh college when parents would ask me where do your students go to college? Well, I could rattle off an impressive list if, if, yeah, yeah. if I wanted to, um, but to me, it's not the point. And I try to discourage the question. I just sure. say, well, here, we, we don't talk about college. We talk about the content of the curriculum itself. All right. Well, I'm not going to get into it. And if anybody wants to invite me on, I could horrify you with uh, what the idea of Korean education is. It starts oh. in kindergarten. It's all about that. But uh, yeah. we, won't get in, we won't get into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, now, with that, I did see on one Facebook post of yours that one of your proudest achievements uh, was that you paid for your girls' college tuitions, your two oldest mm -hmm. ones. And yes. you mentioned it had been a distinct ambition. So is it that college is good for their happiness, yet mm -hmm. college prep is just not the purpose of K-12? Is that it? Okay, so that's interesting. So yes, I um, early on, it was important to me that if my children went to college, I wanted them to graduate free of debt. And that meant I wanted to be able, if possible, to provide um, the support that they needed to pay for their college tuition. And it meant setting limits on where they could go and what the cost of that college could be. So we set some parameters about what the what the options were. And then um, I agreed to, you know, got to the point, fortunately, that I was in a position to be able to help them through that process. Now, the way you formulated the question, it was not important to me that they go to college. And I think that that surprises a lot of people, given that I'm an educator, that I founded and own a school, um, that education is so deeply important to me. But it was not important that they go to college unless college was a means to the end of the career that they that they were interested in. Um, so there are some careers that require you have a college education and that you have to, you know, you have to follow a specific track, but there are plenty of careers and I hope more uh, opportunities every day for people to bypass the universities altogether and just uh, find other find other paths to their careers. Um, so that yeah, it was not it was not an ambition of mine that they go to college and that I pay. It was an ambition that I'd be able to support them through the process should they choose to go to college. For the record, that's what I thought. I was just setting you up to be able to tell us about sure. why. <laughs> yeah. And can uh, I, I want to add, can I add one thing about their college since we're talking about that? So uh, 
I just want to mention the college that they attend and how that came about yep. um, because they're both of my kids dropped out of high school. I have two high school dropouts. I want to say that for the record too. They tried several different high schools. They were very disillusioned by the experience. They knew that they had the support from their educational snob of a mother to, to seek uh, alternative yep. paths if they wanted to. So they were both able to take something called the um, California High School Proficiency Exam after uh, their sophomore year in high school, test out and start taking classes at the local community college is what they chose to do. But then uh, they didn't know at that point what would be next for them. They were just still young, still living at home, still um, taking classes where they could. So one day my eldest daughter came to me in tears and said, I just want to be an educated person. I want to be a very well-informed, well-educated person. I want to once again have the sort of experiences that I had at Van Damme Academy where what I was learning felt meaningful and fulfilling. It felt like it didn't have a political agenda, that there wasn't some uh, indoctrination going on. Um, and I don't, where do I get that? And my answer to her was, I have no idea. <laughs> it doesn't, there, there's no ready category for me of where you're going uh -huh. to fulfill those values. But um, doing a little research, talking some people to some people, we decided that what would probably be best for, she wanted a true liberal arts education. Yeah. What would probably be best was a great books program. Mm -hmm. A great books program takes the approach of going chronologically through what have been you know, a list narrowed down to some of the most important and influential books in the history of mankind. And the approach is to, instead of having the uh, teachers, the professors be the lecturers, to let the texts themselves be the authorities. And it's a discussion-based um, uh, discussion class where the, the professor asks the tutor who guides the discussion. So this mm -hmm. seemed to be a good solution for her yeah. and what she was actually looking for. And that's how they both ended up at a school called Thomas Aquinas College, which um, is uh, actually a very Catholic institution and our family is not Catholic. Um, so it's funny to describe there as being no agenda. There's definitely a Catholic agenda at the school. However, they're very welcoming of students who are not Catholic and the the authorities are the texts and what what they what I was told by people who attended that school was as long as they believed in the possibility of truth they would be comfortable um, participating in that program so they have they have read Plato Aristotle Descartes um, Newton uh, I mean, they, they've read Shakespeare, they've read, they have read, they, the list is phenomenal, extensive, and they're so br brilliantly well-educated at this point. It was really a great success. So I have a, a great fondness for that school. Well, that is, sounds excellent. And congratulations by achieving your goal. And of course, yeah. and, and achieving the secondary one that they actually got a real education, something that they really wanted. Um, bring us back to Van Damme Academy. I, you have a no homework policy there. And homework seems an institution across all cultures and pedagogy. And I'll tell you what, in Korea, um, I can paraphrase Coach Lasso in the original short that if you try to have a no homework policy in Korea, it might be listed in Revelations as a cause for the apocalypse. <laughs> so can you, can you tell us what's behind the no homework policy? Well, 
really it came out of the experience of homeschooling and discovering how much we could accomplish if we used our time wisely. That was that was the essential root of it. That if we were honestly working from eight in the morning to two thirty in the afternoon, we could cover so much material that there was absolutely no necessity of their doing homework. They had done, and it would be kind of inhumane to ask them. And, maybe how you would describe it, it would be inhumane to ask them to do more work because they deserve a psychological break as much as anybody else. And if they're actually, honestly, efficiently working throughout the hours of the day, then having time to pursue interests of their own, to get outside, to spend time with family, to relax, all of these things are vitally important. So part of, part of the idea was it's kind of a lie that, um, the schooling experience was kind of a lie. It was very diluted. It, the day was very inefficient. They were doing not very much work during the day. So then homework was, well, you could say necessary to pile on top of it. Although most kids regard the homework they do as kind of rote and pointless too, not, not, not gaining a tremendous amount out of it. So there's that issue too. But then um, the other, there are a couple other aspects to it. One is that as I said, we're focusing on the intellectual and conceptual development of the child. That's what I think is a school's responsibility. That isn't what I think constitutes all of a child's needs and um, you know needs for their overall health and well-being. There are other things they need to do, and I think things like music are great, and sports are great, and friendships are are great, and relaxation, and all of those are the things that I think are best pursued outside of the context of school, where whether it's because they have more freedom to choose the things that are particular to them, whereas the things that we cover in the school day, I think, are universals that are necessary for all human beings. Um, so anyway, it was partly that, that, that there was no necessity in my mind of homework if you're making efficient use of the school day, and partly that there are lots of things I wanted them to have time for yeah. in the after hours, including time to relax and be free of, re of responsibilities. Right on. And I guess you can learn more about that documentary videos. I'm going to move along. So how does, um, I, here's one thing that struck me in the documentary too. It seems that the students stand and say, good morning, Ms. Van Dan, Mr. Cobra, mm -hmm. et cetera. And then before yep. being seated, how many formalities are there at VDA mm -hmm. and why, why are they appropriate? And in what ways does VDA stray from formality? That's a great question. Um, well, I'll start with the greeting the teacher in the in when they come into class as one of the formalities. And maybe you can give me other uh, ideas of formalities in schools where I can tell you if we if we have that practice or not. If they come, uh, the, I haven't thought it out. Yeah, you haven't thought it out. Okay, well, let's start with the greeting the teacher. So, one thing I'm going to say something on the side because I think it's really important. Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. Thank a teacher. Amaze a neighbor. Surprise your bestie. Just say happy any day. Share the love with choice multi-store gift cards. Available now at giftcards.com. A lot of the school is very is is very personal to me and my experiences, and I think that's inherent in the nature of a school with a leader. And one thing that I would love to see 
is that there uh, is the existence of a lot more schools with a lot more personalities and with a lot more distinctions. Right now we have this monolith of public education um, where we're trying to create this uniformity and standardization. We've got the rare private schools that are affiliated with churches, and then we've got some other private schools with their particular identities. But I can't tell you how many times I've had a parent come to us, maybe it wasn't the ideal fit in some way for their child, and they asked me, so where, what other schools are there that I could explore for my child? And I have to shrug my shoulders and say, not many. Um, if, if we had more freedom in education, there would be a lot more opportunity for people to explore, expand, try certain things, and define a school around their educational principles and their, their values and ideals, but also things that are that you know are unique to them and and uh create a culture of their own so that's an aside to <laughs> as background for this particular issue the way the greeting of the teacher started was that i was taking jujitsu classes and at the start of my jujitsu classes i we had this practice of bowing to the founder of the school and bowing to the professor and you know, saying, I don't remember what we would say at the time, but um, just good morning, professor, whatever. There was some routine and then class would start. And what I noticed was it did two things for the class. One, it created an atmosphere of respect. And two, it marked the start of class. I mean, that was honestly the more um, important aspect of it. We're all focus now we're all on you know paying attention to the same thing we're ready to go it's basically saying we're ready to go now so we adopted that at school it would um i would rather die than have that become something authoritarian and um you know uncomfortable for the kids if that were the feel of it it would never last at the school but the feel of it is we tell them the purpose of it they they're on board with that and then we all infuse it with our own personalities so you mentioned mr cobra our uh beloved grammar teacher grammar and writing teacher well he happens to speak fluent japanese so he teaches the kids uh a greeting in japanese and that's yeah, that's yeah. the routine in, in his classes is to do this japanese greeting which they think is a lot of fun um i tend to vary my greeting according to what work of literature we're reading. So for example, um, just to give you some of the flavor of it, when we're reading To Kill a Mockingbird, they all find this character of Miss DuBose, the, the crotchety old neighbor, very entertaining and hilarious. And she at one point says, uh, they say good morning and hi to her. And she says, don't you hey me, you ugly kids. So when we read that book, one of the times we were reading that book, our greeting became good morning, Ms. or hello miss van dam and i would say don't you hello me you ugly kids and then we would all sit down <laughs> so loving it adding the personal flair it's meant to be fun it's not meant to be authoritarian it's but it is this great way to make sure everybody is on board focused and ready to start the class right it all fits in with the fundamental purpose of being there right it's if it serves yeah. the purpose of getting us ready and you know getting the most out of them Go for it. Yeah, just recently, um, I was telling a story about the school, and I was saying it captures something really important about the school, but I don't know how to define it. And one of my very first students back from the homeschool days said, 
it's who happens to be a writer and novelist herself said it's intellectual rigor with a playful sense of life and i was like well how perfect is this that the original student who's a writer comes up with the perfect formulation of it but that's that's sort of what i think of as what characterizes van damme academy is intellectual rigor with a joyful playful sense of life what else would you want as a parent or a kid or anything <laughs> that's what i want um geez um let's let's uh let's go let's jump to this then uh COVID 19 is, is one subject that's given rise to many uh, divisive issues over the uh past nearly couple years now so how have you dealt with that at your school as far as protecting students while not overprotecting them to what you might consider to their detriment uh that's education wise and health wise and then how do you like broach this sensitive issue with parents of varying perspectives hmm that's been really fascinating because obviously this is a very polarizing issue there is a lot of vitriol surrounding it there is a lot of um intensity of conviction and yet so you know after 2019 when we had to go into lockdown and for a brief period of time we had to shut everything down and i'll tell you what we did in a second mm -hmm. um coming back the following year we we sort of had the feeling that there's going to be no way to make everybody happy in this situation. This is going to be a really difficult situation. Um, relationships with parents are always challenging in certain ways for good, understandable reasons, because we are dealing with the highest value in these people in people's lives. And we don't always have a common vocabulary to discuss it, though I always believe that we have a common motive, which is the well-being of the child. Um, so there i hope so um there are rare exceptions but they are very rare um so usually the the difficulty is just in coming to an understanding of how best to achieve those goals so anyway going into this the most uh you know one of the most unprecedented and complicated and emotion laden times we thought this is going to be a really hard year and it turned out to be one of the best years that I've had at the school in terms of relationships with parents and experience of running the school. And I think um, now you described me as director of the school. I'm actually not director of the school. I have okay. Kyle Steele. Kyle Steele is my head of school, and he is um, a wonderful leader for the school. And he and I, um, the COVID policies were all under his leadership and his guidance, and he was phenomenal at it. But he and I agreed that what we needed to do was be transparent and, and uh, articulate our, our uh, plans clearly. We need to be very transparent. We needed to not set the goal of pleasing everybody because that was going to be impossible, but we needed to give a clear articulation of our reasons for doing the things the way we did. And I think people were very grateful for that. They can, I think a lot of businesses tried to pander and appease. And I think people are very uh, savvy to being pandered to or being appeased. And that is not the sort of relationship we want with our families. And it's, it's what we were committed. We were committed to being very honest with them and to doing our best to explain why we're, we were going to approach things the way we did. And what I got from parents was overwhelming gratitude and respect. It was really um, a great community experience for us. So in terms of the specifics of what we did, um, back right before the lockdown happened, my head of school, Mr. Steele, saw the writing on the wall 
we could see a couple of private schools voluntarily went on lockdown and he could see that that was what was coming as a policy and he said we should prepare for it now so he um you know made the unilateral decision we are going to send everybody home we're going to go online and we took we this very low-tech school that has doesn't even use computers their kids don't have de devices we decided uh, in, that in 48 hours, we are going to be back online with the full schedule of normal classes for all the students in the school. So in 48 hours, we got the resources of Google Classroom and Zoom, and the kids had the same schedule of the same classes with the same teachers every day. So it was incredible amount of normalcy for them. We have the kind of, because we are, uh, you know, innovators of curriculum who are kind of accountable ourselves for what we're doing in the classroom rather than having to deliver something that's handed to us we're able to pivot very nicely and just um, uh, transfer everything we were doing in classroom to an online scenario it's very lecture and discussion based that was facilitated yep. well with zoom so we for you know for that period that we were in lockdown normal schedule of classes on zoom then when it was time when it we were given an opportunity to come back. We were able to obtain a waiver on the first day of school, September 2020, and have a hybrid situation where we had some people in person, but those who were not yet comfortable sending their kids back, they could remain at home. So we just simultaneously taught classes on Zoom and to the kids at home. And set we most of the most for the most part, we followed CDC guidelines. Um, I think almost almost entirely. Uh, we found them to be fairly reasonable, and um, we didn't claim to know better than the CDC how to protect the well-being of our students. So we had co cohorting where each class um, was its own little unit separate from all the others. They didn't have any interaction or commingling among them, so they had lunch in their rooms. Um, they wore masks uh, last year inside and out fortunately this year only inside um so they're just the general uh best practice recommended protocols were the things we followed um and this year all we're required to do really is have the kids wear masks indoors and we're able to operate um pretty normally other than that excellent uh just a quick one is there anything that you're going to take into the future any practices or technologies here mm. uh, I'll tell you my favorite story about that. Sorry. So um, because everybody went online and because we used Google Classroom as a resource, yeah. I, in teaching my literature classes, discovered, I knew this, but I discovered in practice that giving feedback on writing assignments was much easier, if I can type out comments in the margin of a document, than physically handwriting notes in the margins of their paper. So there was a temptation to go away from the paper to allow at least the junior high students if not the younger students to continue to do work on their on their devices so we could give them this more efficient um more extensive honestly feedback because just of the the facility of typing and of making corrections and such so i wasn't the only one who identified that virtue of of their having devices the future will be amazing and that's all well and good but what about today? You can feel the rush of a 400 horsepower Nissan Z. 
or climb to new heights in the all-terrain Nissan Frontier. Light up the road in the all-electric Nissan Aria that feels like a sci-fi dream come true. The future will be great, but today is made for thrill. All you have to do is get in a Nissan and drive. 2023 Aria and Z not yet available for purchase. Expected availability is this spring for 2023 Z and this fall for 2023 Aria. And let me tell you another story mm-hmm. <laughs> related to them bringing devices to school. So uh, Mr. Lewis, our history teacher, is one of the greatest, most dynamic, most wonderful teachers ever to be and ever to be at Van Damme <laughs> Academy for sure. The kids adore him. His lectures are captivating. And um, history is a favorite subject at Van Dam Academy. Well, one day I was walking by the junior high class and I was behind them and they were sitting at their devices while Mr. Lewis is, t- is uh, giving a lecture. And I noticed that three of them were doing something other than taking notes. And it's, I can hardly blame them. Obviously, I had a talk, you know, I talked to them about it, but it's such a temptation. It's easy to feel like you're paying attention to quickly do something else on the side. It's just, it's the the temptation is overwhelming. The distractions are Mm -hmm. ever present. So combining those two stories, we had a staff meeting and we said, well, here are the benefits and luxuries of having the kids have devices and here are the hazards. And we talked about it for about five minutes and said, no, none, they're going away. We're not having devices, they're going back to pencil and paper. And um, I think it's funny because we've we've always been a pencil and paper school. And there was a time that parents would come into the school and say, well, isn't that going to place them at a disadvantage? Aren't they going to be unskilled um, with computers when when it be you know how are they going to do a powerpoint presentation when they get to high school what about their typing skills all of these things and um i would say they easily acquire those outside of school that's not something that requires our supervision it's something that is uh you know devices today are largely intuitive the skills they need are very easy and they it's funny because i think there was a transition period where parents themselves were intimidated by um computers and and projected that onto their children but these days it feels like children are born knowing how to do uh, you know everything they and to the extent that they don't i found with my own daughters they're very comfortable googling how do i do a powerpoint presentation and learning it in about 15 seconds right so um there was a time that parents would give me resistance to the idea of of us being just pencil and paper and of that setting the kids at a disadvantage now after after the last year and a half when i say we are device free school and the kids work on pen, paper and pencil the almost universal response is oh thank god uh, because they they see that it's not necessary they see how much facility they have with it that they don't really need the practice in school they see what a distraction and an addiction um it can be and they really want us focused on the intellectual you know slow meticulous involved intellectual content and we don't need anything but paper and pencil to do that um so yeah that's that's excellent 
I hope we've, we've uh, got a lot of things out here that are not found in the documentary. Uh, before we move on to the parenting aspect, I will say to listeners one more time, go and watch this documentary, A Little Candle on YouTube. You can meet some of these teachers she's talking about, see these kids and how they, how much, you know, she's saying that they love it, but go see how they react and see how parents react. And it's, uh, it moved me. Um, I can't even begin to tell you how much that documentary moved me. So I can't recommend that enough. Um, um, can away. I say one thing about that too? Yes. The idea, the idea of the documentary. So after I started this school, which is uh, K through eight, one class per grade, 140 kids. So that means I can only reach 140 kids in any yeah. given year. And so I would be constantly asked, well, when are you going to start a second school, high school, franchise, you know, scale this operation? And I was very clear that that is not my personal ambition. Um, scaling schools is a whole separate issue. Uh, I don't even really think it's possible. But um, I knew that running this one little school is what I wanted to do. However, I did feel like we had a lot to contribute to the discussion about education. And I did want to be a voice in that discussion in some form. So the idea of the documentary was to give people an access point to what was unique and distinctive about the school, and ideally, to get them to come and see it. So I just want to say that it's not, um, I would love to have teachers, parents, anybody from anywhere come and observe and see, uh, just see what's different about the school and see if it has any impact on how uh, they think things should be done um, in their own educational environment. So that it's a means to an end. And the end is come and see the actual, not just even the film, but the actual Van Damme Academy. All right. So go in to Van Damme Academy if you can get to Orange <laughs> County. Call yeah. first. But yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Um, so there's uh, so much more I'm squirming to ask you on the topic of education, but we got to move on. Um, I, I do want to leave the topic now with a quote from your school's blog. Uh, we continually have to remind our students, our parents, and most importantly, ourselves, that what matters is an overall pattern of growth rather than an absolute standard of achievement in any particular area. And I've got no yeah. question. I just wanted to repeat that out loud. Yeah, that's um, great. Yeah. Uh, how much, by the way, that, that quote there, how much does that apply to your own kids and your expectations or evaluations of them as a parent? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I... Of course. So... Parents and educators alike, I think, focus too much on outcomes and too little on relationships and growth and individual development. So they'll have a certain idea in mind of what they want their child to accomplish, what they want their personality to look like, what they, and it kind of, uh, it, it has all sorts of negative impacts, setting them at odds with their kids, setting them at odds with their nature, sometimes making it an adversarial relationship instead of a loving and, and supportive one. So yes, as both an educator and a parent, it's very important to me to look at my individual child, my individual child's personality, my individual child's talents and abilities, and just view myself as nurturing them in the development of traits of character, intellectual habits, um, uh, you know, um, means of pursuing their own ambitions to support and nurture them through, through those things with their happiness as the ultimate goal, not some outcome that I want to achieve for them, but what they, they want from life and what 
best prepares them to be able to achieve those things. Man, all right. Uh, as to that parenting blog, um, I want to start with the questions you asked yourself before starting it up. And if it yeah. isn't already apparent uh, to listeners, why does anyone want my advice and why should anyone listen to me? What answers did you find there? Oh, well, so I also just started doing a, a parenting podcast on the Ayn Rand Center UK. And um, I'm, I, it's actually, I have a co-host now, Mr. Steele, my, my head of school who I mentioned. And um, we had to come up with a title for the for the parenting podcast. And I think uh, the the person who was coordinating this proposed a few things, but it quickly became clear that the title should be "Enjoy Parenting," because that, in terms of parenting, um, again, this has to do with the issue of outcomes versus relationships versus nurturing and support. I want my goal in being a parent is to have a wonderful relationship with my children and to um, do an, a, an effective job of supporting them along the way. And I want that to be an enjoyable experience. And I, I feel like so many people are crippled by anxieties and um, and self-doubts and set unreasonable expectations for themselves in ways that undermine the whole point of it and the whole experience, which is to have a wonderful, enjoyable relationship with your child. Um, so yeah, that is, so why should people listen to me? I think, um, I, I know you weren't suggesting that they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why, why the, a lot of people come to me for parenting advice. I haven't written a book on the subject. I don't have a ready list of stock principles available to give to them. But what I have is four kids myself, myself ranging from 22 to seven. Mm -hmm. I have 25 years of interacting with parents at my school and seeing um, it's almost a laboratory of, of parenting styles and techniques. Yeah. And most of all, a real love of parenting. I think, it, I think people, uh, People who know me would probably make central to their understanding of who I am as a person that I really love being a mom. So if I can give advice that helps other people to really love the experience of parenting, then that's a that's a great, great thing to be able to do. Well, you're succeeding already in those posts. And now I guess the podcast, that's exciting. I didn't, I don't know how I did not know that. I didn't anyway. get on your radar. No, you know, every week, Thursday. Well, my time zone, Cal uh, Pacific time, Thursday is at 11 a.m. All right. And we'll make sure we get all that up. And uh, at the end, you can repeat it. And we're certainly going to make sure it's all there. Um, okay. Just to just to get it going, you have you said you had the four. You've got Alana, Greta, Scar uh, Seth, and then Scarlett, a.k.a. Mm -hmm. Coco. Um, mm -hmm. I know people uh, don't like talking about their kids, but, but just give us a quick, uh, just a little okay. bit of who are they like? Yeah. And who, who's at what age? Because we may have to refer sometimes to them or something. Refer back to them. Yeah, sure. So yeah. Lana and Greta um, are children from a previous marriage, and they are uh, 22 and 20, mm -hmm. and both seniors at Thomas Aquinas College, as I mentioned, so about to graduate from college. Um, they went to my school, kindergarten through eighth grade, so they were at school with mom that whole time. And then I mentioned their high school journey, too. So they both have this great books program degree, liberal arts education, no specific career ambition at this point and no specific preparation for a particular career, just a general wide ranging education. They are both incredibly 
uh, yeah, people don't like talking about their parents, their children. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to start boasting, but they're both um, people I very much admire, trust, and respect, which is a wonderful uh, feeling to have. Um, one that that was true all through the teenage years too. Um, they're very resourceful, creative, crafty people, which is kind of fascinating to me because the crafty part has absolutely nothing to do with me. I don't cook. I don't, I don't sew. I don't knit. I don't paint. I don't draw. And they somehow have developed all of these skills and talents. Um, in part, I think because of what I said before, of just having this facility of using the resources that exist, finding them um, and uh, mining all of the, the resources in the world to develop these talents. So um, that's the, and so you mentioned earlier that I say I either have four kids or two kids twice. There's a big age gap between the first two and the second two of my current marriage. Um, and this, the others are Seth who's nine and Coco, was born Scarlet, but changed her own name. <laughs> she is, Coco is seven. Um, so Seth and Coco uh, currently go to my school. And um, Coco is the one who's thrown us all for a loop because she's the, uh, she's the extrovert in a family of introverts. Yeah. Okay. Which yeah, changed you know, her name. I, I give you a little clue. Well, that's it. I mean, it's obviously I don't know you personally, and I was always, yeah. but yet uh, on Facebook, when I when I see something, I call my wife and I and I refer to you familiarly. I say like, "Oh, you look, check it out, Seth and Scarlett are you know they're in Austin now, right?" And she just comes over and looks and smiles like it's our some of our friends' kids, right? And she yeah, knows yeah. them. And yeah. Coco appeared one time. She's Coco referred to as Coco one day, and then I was yeah. like, "I'm sure it's." Scarlet, but I guess what's the, what's this Coco? But yeah. she changed it herself. Well, so we called her Coco as a nickname, and yeah. I still remember exactly where we were. We were in the car one day, and she said, "No, I think I'm going to go by that as my as my actual name now." And I sort of shrugged my shoulders and said, "Okay, you can do that if you want." And I didn't think it would stick necessarily, but yeah. Seth, her brother changed immediately, never went back, never had any self-consciousness about calling her a different name. She was Coco. Once When she declared that, he was on board 100%. So then the rest of us just sort of followed suit, and now she's Coco. Oh, my. I'll tell you what, learning that and hearing that idea that she changed her name, it fits in perfectly with at least my impression of her from what yeah. I can gather. It's just, yeah. oh, my God. Uh, who is the parent to the child? Are they like a friend, a protector, mm. an authority, or all of the above? Because people mm. are kind of confused. I think some people are confused about their relationship with their kids, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it what it ought to be. Yeah. Well, do you have kids yourself? I don't. I don't. I don't. But, but 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 we, we teach we teach kids privately in our home, and we've done that for many years. Uh, some of them with with us. Some of them right. we, we consider nieces and nephews now. Sure. Um, yeah. You know. And, I know. Well, and, when people ask how many kids I have, it's either four or 144. Because yeah. well, no, there's some overlaps, but. Anyway, um, that's uh, certainly those are relationships are important to me too. Um, so, what is the role of a parent? I mean, yeah, sounds like who all are of they? Things. Who are they? It sounds like all of the things you described because certainly, as I mentioned, it's very important to me the relationship itself. I I feel like that is underemphasized. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong about that. And I don't know exactly uh, where that impression comes from, but I feel like the relationship aspect of it is underemphasized. I would not use the word friend 
because that seems to put you sort of on a on a um, the same level and unquestionably the child is born unformed has lots to learn about the world and requires a lot of guidance and and i think people who who think of it as a friendship usually fail to take the role uh the proper role as guide and nurturer and mentor with their children so i certainly it's very important to me to have a friendly and uh um a relationship where we're not adversaries at all, but allies in a process. Um, so I want a friendly relationship, but I wouldn't say friend. Um, so, but yeah, the relationship is important. The, um, the, what were some of the other words you used? You used protector uh, authority, uh, mm -hmm. authority. So yeah, finding the balance of all those things is the key, I think, because authority without being authoritarian, protector without yeah, being sure, overprotective, sure. uh, friendly without being peers and friends. It sounds like um, with all of those terms, it's finding, striking the right balance between allowing autonomy for the child and allowing them their own personal development, but also um, being the thoughtful, mature, more informed, more civilized being yeah. as an hope, adult hope so. who has to offer them gosh certainly hope so um uh being a, a guide to them mm -hmm. well um, i think I, we're go ahead. yeah i think that um some of the tendencies that can go wrong are if you mm -hmm. feel like your child you know if you if you're kind of on an original sin premise where you sort of see the child is inherently flawed from the beginning your job is to correct it then you're going to err on the authoritarian side mm -hmm. instead of seeing them as just a, a innocent neutral unformed not yet civilized but on the path you know in in a more positive term then you're not your tendency is not to be authoritarian it's to be nurturing and helpful and supportive and and a guide and a mentor but not an authority ruling them ruling over them with a rod of iron um but similarly there's there can be a big mistake in thinking well the child has an inherent nature it's like a seed where all you need to do is give it water and it's going to fully form into its into the you know inherent um uh the inherent final product that's there contained within it i think that's a huge mistake that can steer you wrong too, um, because they do actually, there's nothing inherent in them. There's no career in the kernel of your child. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, their experiences, the nurturing you give them, the, the direction you give them, the modeling that you do for them, all of those are going to deeply shape who they are as they right. grow. Well, I think we've done very well with that question. Um, mm -hmm. How about this? One of your first and most important rules for parenting is pay attention. What does that mean? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's so it's so broad, but yet so crucially important. Yeah. I think this goes along. Well, it, it involves a lot of things, but one of them is the enjoyment aspect. I think something I'm good at as a parent is noticing noticing what is happening with my kids in any given moment what sorts of uh in what ways they're growing what's interesting about the observations they make what's delightful about the the uh interests they have or the talents they have and i 
you know, we're all very busy. It's a very demanding, fast-paced life for most of us. And, and it just seems like more and more culturally, we're having to learn how to carve out time to really focus on and dwell on our values. And I hope for most parents, their children are central to those values, but it's very easy to have this get in the, in the way of paying attention or to, um, or to feel like, you know, I've got all this work to do. My kids are a distraction from the things I need to accomplish or, and so just, um, making sure you're allotting the time and habituating the focus to dwell in the little moments of your child's life and to dwell in the significance of the little moments and what those mean. Um, and you mentioned that I post a lot about my kids on Facebook, which is an interesting question of its own. And at some point I'm going to face the more, the need for more privacy in their life. And there are questions about privacy that um, I may be making mistakes on even now, but in any case, I do post a lot about them on Facebook and my real purpose in posting about them on Facebook is exactly to habituate that kind of paying attention that I mentioned. When I tell, when I tell a story on Facebook, it's because I took the time to conceptualize the moment that I'm telling the story about. It was something that I, I I've created the habit of saying, oh, wow, that was adorable. What was so adorable about that? How do I capture that in words and then share it? Um, now, I'm not saying Facebook is a necessary step in the yeah. in in that process, but it's one that's really helpful to me. It's like um, you know, deadlines can be helpful. Having a having a place a place of output for this process is helpful for me. But putting Facebook aside, just that habit of observe, reflect, conceptualize articulate mm -hmm. what was so what was so great about that um we should do that in every aspect of our lives and that's something i think literature actually helps people yeah. um to become better at doing but uh it's something that's particularly important for me with my children i i want to just notice all those things that are so special mm -hmm. wow you know what i was I'm hearing in all that enjoy parenting that's what's coming yeah. to mind now yeah um so in another one, yeah, there's a, you, you referred to explaining why you can't explain. Um, so why is it important to give quote unquote reasons for the things you ask your kids to do, even from before they really understand what you're talking about? Mm. Recall that. that too goes to the, the relationship and uh, having a relationship with your child that's not adversarial, but that where you are a guide and a nurturer. So um, I always, if I require something of my children, I always try to explain why. Um, I mentioned this on the podcast re recently, but I'll, I'll tell it here too. Uh, Coco, my youngest was asking me if she could watch something on her iPad. And this is, um, this is one of life's challenges right now. iPads are, their iPads are extremely addictive. She really likes YouTube videos. She likes YouTube videos where people are opening unwrapping toys that seems to be a, an especially addictive series of videos um, my son really likes minecraft and um roblox that's those sorts of wow. and uh if they were left to their own devices no pun intended they would um they would spend all their time probably doing that uh so recently she wanted to watch something on her iPad. I set limits on how much time she's allowed to do that. And she said, well, when I'm a parent, 
that my kids are going to be able to do it as much as they want. So I just paused for a second there and I said, so that's interesting. Do you think, why do you think I don't let you? Do you think you're just going to be a nicer mom than I am? And she said, no. <laughs> I said, so do you, can you think of any reasons why I might think it's not a good idea to spend all your time on the iPad? And she said, it's hard to put into words. Like she could, she could vaguely sort of think of things, but she couldn't think of what they were. And she probably didn't so much want to say them because then she'd be conceding something to my side. But um, so I just briefly explained, you know, it's, there's something passive in watching videos and you actually become kind of tired and lethargic if you do it too much. And it's just really important to be active physically and to be active mentally. And there are certain things that are just kind of better for your body and brain um, than watching videos though. But I, I'm always trying to be very careful not to make her feel guilty for liking to watch videos. I think that's a mistake a, par- a lot of parents make is to make that almost like a sin that the child indulges in, um, that the parent is is responsible for cutting off and condemning. But I, you know, perfectly normal, healthy, you want to watch videos, but we just have to find the right place for it and the balance of what makes for a good, happy, healthy life. Um, so how much will she get out of that explanation? I don't know. Um, some amount. And, uh, and additionally, she'll get the idea that I do respect her interests and I do want to explain that to her. So it, it makes it this harmonious, we're in this together. I just, yep. you know, want what's best for you. So there's kind of a, a, a background tone to it that I think is valuable. And then she will pick up probably on more than I even realize or that she'll acknowledge or admit in the moment mm-hmm. if that's just the habitual way of doing it. Now, I don't feel the need to convince her in order to set the limits. Um, I'm, I'm still the authority. I still know what's best and I will impose those limits whether she agrees to them or not. But um, but I always make a, a policy of, of explaining it to her. Right. And it sounds like maybe she'll catch up to the reasons on her own later, as you say, instead of yeah. pushing it right on her and, you know, you got to convince, I got to convince her. Just let it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there is that phenomenon that all parents who've had toddlers know that you, they understand what you're explaining long before they can make it clear to you in words of their own that they understand. So they develop a capacity for understanding that precedes their ability to articulate their thoughts. So, so because of that, and I think that becomes true. I mean, I think that remains true all through their development that like, like Coco said, she didn't have the words for it, but I think she had some, you know, vague uh, floating thoughts about it that I was then able to crystallize and, and make more explicit and conceptual for her. Mm-hmm. But that means we have to always treat them as if they have a capacity to understand more than we give them credit for and just sort of, you know, be setting setting the bar a little higher all the time. So then they're kind of following along and keeping up with us. Right on. Um, How about this then? What is the combination lock approach to life? I guess it's, we we hit a bit of that with the overall pattern of growth. Mm -hmm. I guess it's maybe a counter to that, but what's the combination Mm -hmm. lock and why is it detrimental and what's an alternative view? Are you talking about that in the path? The path is not narrow thing. Is that where I mentioned that idea? So the idea, I think if I remember um, where I referenced that, I, th- I think uh, it might have been Chad, your husband. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm trying. Let me let me just conjure the context for this again. Yeah. Um, I think the idea there was 
Oh yeah, I remember what the idea was. Okay, this is really interesting. It's a little complex, but it's a great point. So I'd, I'd like to try to explain it. Yeah, that's why I wanna. <laughs> um, yeah, my so my daughter, the way this came up was my eldest daughter had a friend who um, was facing a really difficult decision in life because she wanted to do something that was not consistent with her parents' ambitions for her and meant that she was gonna have to kind of strike out on her own and not have the support of parents. Well, that's a major, major decision for um, for a person to make. And my daughter was trying to be advisor and um, and and supporter in this scenario, and was really worried about well, what if I tell her the wrong thing? What if the thing I tell her turns out to be a disaster, and I've sort of steered her the wrong way? And so that's where my husband used this idea of the combination lock. He's What he tried to describe to my daughter is that what she was trying to do is find the, the perfect combination of actions and the exact right thing to do in this complex scenario. And what he was suggesting to her is that's not really possible in any aspect of life ever. We can't forecast the future, figure out the exact right thing to do, anticipate and know all the outcomes, and then, um, you know, retrofit everything we're going to do perfectly to that outcome. It doesn't, we don't have that capacity. And what he said was, but we don't need it. It was a very like encouraging, reassuring message. The idea was you don't need to be able to do that in order to be a success. What you need to do is take in the information you have, make the best judgment you can, and then adapt to whatever happens. And you'll just be repeating that process again at a, um, a time, more, at, you know, a more advanced time with a different set of information. But there was something very um, encouraging and relieving about the idea of, you don't in making decisions, you don't have to figure out the combination lock. You just have to, uh, make the most sensible judgment you can and know that you can't know all the outcomes, but that you have a capacity to make a sensible judgment again when you reach the next outcome. Right on. There it is. Uh, how about this then? What is psychological transparency? What is that? Mm, yeah. And how can we nurture that it in our phrase, children? Yeah, that's a phrase I use a lot. Um, psychological transparency is, the idea is to encourage encourage a habit of introspection, of exploring what you're actually feeling in any given moment, and to create a culture in your home or your workplace or your school in which a person feels comfortable revealing what it is that they're actually feeling in that moment and feels safe with you explaining that um, and feels like they will be supported and understood and nurtured. So it comes up in, in uh, every day in every respect that I can think of. Um, the, I'll, I mean, what comes to mind, of course, is one of the most dramatic incidents of this in, in my life. But my um, second daughter, Greta, when I was remarried, she was very unhappy about this situation. She was very... Um, she had a lot of fears and a lot of worries and a lot of anger about having a new person come into her home and have this feel like I was being taken away from her 
Okay. So, but, but what it came out at, as is anger. Well, the principle of psychological transparency would be helping her to figure out what exactly are the fears that are leading to that anger. Does she fear, fear she's losing me? Does she fear that she's going to have this strained relationship with a person that she didn't grow up with now living in her home? Does she uh, fear that she's going to take second place to my new husband? Does she fear that I'm going to have kids again, which I did, which she was fearful of, um, and that she's going to lose her place in the family to them? What are the fears? What do they mean? If I create an environment where she uh, is encouraged to and habituates really trying to get underneath the anger, underneath the feeling, and identify what those thoughts are, and then feel safe saying, I'm afraid of this. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, this that phrase that sunlight is the best disinfectant. It just unburdens a person's soul to be able to be completely upfront and honest about this. So this is something I, I try to habituate myself. I try to model for other people. I try to make um, a, a practice of every environment I'm in. And I think it goes a long way to um, creating real trust. It got, it, I was, when I was describing the situation with the parents and, and uh, the COVID situation, let's say, for example, I said to parents, you know, this is a really challenging situation. I, uh, I'm, it could be difficult for me to um, announce policies here because, of course, everybody has their own strong opinions about it. And inevitably, uh, our policy is not going to accord. If I'm just honest about that as an apprehension and that as a possible result, people really value that sort of honesty and it's it's disarming um and it's and it's real it's it makes for real relationships and good communication and yes excellent um and hey i actually had that word in my head and then you said it and I'm, whoa there you go Disarm, <laughs> disarming um, disarming yeah yeah i guess that's part of it too um you say it's wrong-headed to talk your child out of sadness and i find that very curious and mm -hmm. so is that similar kind of thing uh, what's the, what's the alternative to talking them out of sadness? Mm. Well, it's funny because that just came up on the parenting podcast I did this morning. So I should have been listening to this thing. I could have cut it all. I should have been listening. No, but it, it's, it's so fresh in my mind because I, I um, it's funny because I start the podcast with what's been on my mind in regard to parenting in the last week. And then my co-host, Mr. Steele, does the same thing in terms of what's what's been on his mind. And that very issue is what's been on my mind because... I had just an experience the other day where um, I was at a, a breakfast restaurant with my kids and um, and my husband and Seth, my son, spilled ice water in his lap, and he's um, he, he's got perfectionist tendencies and he's he you know gets emotional about making mistakes. If he doesn't understand something or if he makes a mistake, that's very uncomfortable for him and he gets he will get emotional about that. So in this particular incident, he just started to cry immediately when when the water fell in his lap. Well, my inclination in that moment was I gotta fix it. That's, a, that's always the natural tendency of a parent. Child is crying, must do something, gotta stop them from feeling this way. So I started saying, well, what is it that's bothering you? Is it 
it was it just shocking and uncomfortable are you embarrassed is it that your pants are wet and you don't want to go outside don't worry it's hot outside it'll dry out um, really fast and I start you know trying to identify all the feelings he might be having and answer them with the goal of making him feel better well when I stepped away from that situation I thought oh, I'm not making him feel better I am making him feel a heck of a lot worse because now he had this uncomfortable situation he feels bad about it and I'm hovering over him in this um in this uh really like intrusive way demanding that he explain this to me obviously that wasn't my goal but my goal was to make him feel better but in reality I was just being very intrusive um so really if I were if I could go back rewind the tape and do that over again I would just you know put my hand on his shoulder and be there available to him if you wanted to say anything about what he was feeling make it clear that I care about him and I'm sorry he feels bad maybe say is there anything you want to talk about or anything I can help with just let me know and then back off and let him deal with it but um one phrase that Mr. Steele my head of school uses that I find very valuable is um uh your child's emotion is not an action item if they're having an emotion that doesn't necessitate that you must do something <laughs> right now yeah. or um the other way he'll say it is help my child has a feeling feelings are natural responses to experiences sometimes they require support and intervention most of the time they just require the child's own opportunity to process it and um and as a parent you can just be kind and available and supportive and loving to them and that's what they need the most in that moment all right well what's behind how about the, what's the lesson behind this one um i saw a time uh, you asked your kids to do a puzzle you thought that would be fun and then they vehemently rejected your proposal and then mm -hmm. later you just started doing the puzzle and then they joined in what's yeah. up with, is there a what's principle it, behind that where else well, does it's funny because i early on um my son is kind of a numbers kid he, he's not as much anymore but especially when he was really little he was very interested in and obsessed with numbers and i had this friend who's a, a brilliant mathematician and i said what should i do to support or facilitate that and i distinctly remember that his advice at the time was leave books around the house don't like don't imp don't be too intrusive again it's almost like the water <laughs> in a different mm -hmm. different scenario don't be overbearing or intrusive or um just create opportunities so that's one of my that's one principle that i try to um consistently uphold as a parent is creating opportunities but not pushing a certain vision or agenda on them so i think part of the idea is if i'm saying do you want to do a puzzle there's an agenda to it i'm sort of i'm suggesting that that's what i want them to do and you know as part of their exercise of autonomy they're gonna maybe push back a little bit against it i don't there could be all sorts of reasons that they that they resist that but if i create opportunities for them then they get to exercise that that choice and that um that uh autonomy of decision making and it can be th their their thing that they chose to do Hi, this one um, on with the emotions, I say, is there an emergency type thing where you have to do something, but if it's not, let it be something to that effect. Yeah. What about yeah. uh, what about tantrums? Are there any mm -hmm. advice on that kind of thing for young parents? Yeah. Um, so 
this is something I get asked about a lot because it's one of the most emotionally taxing things a parent has to go through. And my first piece of advice would be, it's normal. Okay. That doesn't sound, I mean, everybody knows that it's a phase of development, yet everybody goes through that and fears that their child, not consciously maybe, but projects, my child is going to be a monster if I don't get a handle on these tantrums. This is going to become a pattern of behavior. It's not, it doesn't typically become a pattern of behavior. It's a developmental phase. That's my other, one of my other refrains. It's a phase. I've almost everything that's a struggle of that kind is a phase. And if you take the attitude that it's a phase, you can kind of patiently wait it out rather than feeling like it's something that needs to be corrected and fixed right now. So that's one piece of advice is expect that it's a, a phase of development. It's inevitable. It's normal. It's natural. It's okay. It doesn't mean that they're going to become a brat. Um, and there's, you know, you're starting on this path of, of terrible behavior. And also, part of it, accepting that it's an inevitable phase is allowing for it to be a disruption in your life. We're all kind of on this track in our lives and we have a certain expectation of how things are going to go and how long they're going to take and what we want. And the, when something derails it, it can feel very frustrating. But the thing about having kids is things are going to be derailed all the time. And if we don't, we don't make peace with this, then it's not going to be an enjoyable process. So you have to build in the expectation that things are not going to go as expected. That's that's really key to happy parenting. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing that I just remember as a technique of uh, managing tantrums, um, I remember this most distinctly with Coco, maybe because she's the youngest. Mm -hmm. I would um, try to get her to look me in the eye. When she's in the midst of a tantrum, I'd say, look at me. Can you look me in the eye? Quietly, patiently, yeah, yeah. not frustrated, not angry, just quietly trying to engage her. Because part of the tantrum situation that I think anyone can observe is they're out of control. It's like, it's almost like, um, like the wiring uh, in their bodies goes off somehow. And mm -hmm. it, it involves, uh, you know, outbursts of emotion, but it also involves inability to focus in that moment. And I, they're probably, I'm sure there are people who can explain what's going on in them in terms of their, you know, like the neuro uh, science of it. But um, anyway, the pa having quietly, patiently trying to summon their attention in that moment sometimes will, um, will en enable you to calm them and and dissipate the tantrum aspect and then get to whatever's going on that's that's prompting it all right well that sounds very helpful because i had in mind is obviously i can imagine it's a phase and i can be patient mm -hmm. and say look this isn't going to last forever um especially mm -hmm. if i don't they're not rewarded for it right yeah. i mean yeah. you know what yeah. I mean? um but but i was thinking more like publicly for example is freak yeah. you know your child's freaking out it's like what can you do to maybe do something but there you go yeah yeah that one thing that this is true in classroom management too what never works is to escalate your reaction and pace with their um with their outbursts so if if they get loud and you get louder and they get louder and then you get louder and that that just never works what often works in classroom management and similarly in tantrums is they get loud you get really quiet <laughs> you just sit back 
be silent, observe. Eventually, they start to get uncomfortable and look around <laughs> and notice what's going on. Um, or if you whisper, they have to be quiet to hear what you're saying. So there can be this calming effect and simple silence. Um, and I think that's true with tantrums too. If you match their high energy uh, outburst with low energy, calm, quiet, you're going to have a much better chance of, of getting through to them than if you meet it, meet it with uh, energy of your own. Makes a lot of sense to me. I wonder this one, uh, do you, do you find anything, what, what do you find different, if anything, in boys and girls? And do you deal with your kids differently because of that at all? That's really, that's interesting. I have three girls and one boy, so I have imbalanced experience, but I do remember, I'm sure there are differences, but I do remember saying with my first two, who are both girls, 18 months apart, that if the second had been a boy, I would have attributed all the differences between them to, um, you know, one being a boy and one being a girl, because they were very, very different children. So I, I think it's really hard to generalize or extrapolate from each of our very individual experience. So my preference is just to look at them utterly as individuals and just sort of be uh, observant of and responsive to their distinct personalities. Um, I think my son more resembles his older sisters than he does his younger sister. I think uh, that those perfectionist tendencies and that um, kind of... Uh, Method, methodical, almost, I mean, if, if they had a, um, uh, if there was anything that, that they did to a fault, it was actually that they were too much on the premise of, of being good all the time, of doing the right thing all the time, which is a wonderful problem, I admit, for a parent to have, but, but it can make their lives difficult if they're always trying to do, you know, the combination lock. Again, if they're always yeah. trying to find the combination lock, it can give them a lot of anxiety and, um, and, and uh, make happiness a challenge. Um, but yeah, he's, he's more on that continuum than he is his uh, more free-spirited younger sister. All right, very good. Uh, on a similar vein here, Chad, uh, your husband, we got to give props out to daddy on, yeah. the, on the show here. Uh, is there any different role for him? And I don't mean like we change the diapers, but is, is what is sure. he to your kids that's different from what you are to them? He is the um, patient, quiet, even keel, very level uh, force in their life, truly. Um, I think they they know that they will always they he is always infinitely interested in what they're thinking and feeling mm -hmm. and he's always going to be calm i am a more emotionally volatile person myself so even though i might strive to to be that in certain ways inevitably my own emotions are going to come into play and so what i try to do um knowing that I'm not always, I mean, just this morning, I had to apologize to my son for losing my temper. I lost my temper with him. I got really frustrated. I raised my voice. And the two things that I try to do when that happens are, number one, um, always say, I feel really angry. Instead, I never um, say, you are X. I always say, I feel really frustrated that this is happening. So I have definitely habituated making it about how I'm feeling in that moment as opposed to an attack on him. The second thing I do is apologize when I think I lose 
when I think I lost my temper. It's, I think it's really important for parents to feel comfortable apologizing for their behavior um, after the fact. And I could see the impact it had on my son. Um, he, uh, prior to that, has he was really being contentious with his sister and that's part of what prompted it. And after I apologized to him, he conceded something to her that he had been really resistant to before I apologized. So it, the impact was obvious immediately. Oh my, um, I'll try to see if I can lump a few things together. Again, I'm just, I don't want to tax your time too much, right? I know you're among the busiest people out there. I will yeah. have to go pick my daughter up in about 10 minutes. So I've All got right. 10 minutes left. Beautiful. Okay. Um, then how about this? Um, here's a quote then. Uh, I, I think it is one of the special thrills of parenting to watch your kids develop skills and passions that have nothing to do with you. And I'm <laughs> saying hallelujah, amen, whatever to that. Yeah. And how much is about you and having a child and how much is about them? I guess, I mean, what are some good reasons to have kids? What are some bad ones that people? Have? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I remember before I had my first child, anticipating what the feeling would be and thinking they would feel like my belonging. Maybe that sounds kind of strange, but it was just like, this is a, is a small human who belongs to me. And I remember my daughter being born and very quickly feeling like, Oh no, this isn't really separate person from me. There is a way in which she belongs to me and I feel, you know, possessive and protective and all of that. But it was also very clear that this is an, a, you know, independent entity, utterly distinct from me. And um, yeah, the thing about the thrill of seeing their time, it's funny because I have to go pick up my daughter in, in a little bit from school and take her to her gymnastics class. Well, gymnastics is another of those those interests for my youngest that formed utterly independent of, of me. It wasn't something I suggested. It wasn't something I presented to her. She had friends at school who were doing gymnastics. She started copying everything they did. She became obsessive about it so that her whole, every aspect of her free time was spent doing cartwheels. And then she wanted to um, start taking classes. She started taking classes. She wanted private lessons. She um, is is desperately trying to get on the team, which is going to consume my life as soon as she does. But this is the sort of thing where I just sit back and go, okay, kid, if this is this is what you want to do and this is what's making you excited about life right now, I am here to support it. That's that's what. And she um, she was taking tennis lessons prior to this. She just decided that gymnastics gymnastics is her all-consuming passion she doesn't want to take tennis we dump tennis if she does she i need there's like broad principles it's important that she be physically active but within those broad principles i want to let her run the show and let her values be the driver there um but yeah it is it's really if you're not on the premise of wanting a particular outcome from your, for, from your child of wanting them to be a reader that's that's one that a lot of people um, set as a goal for their child and feel like I'm a success if my child is reading. I am a literature teacher, and my the, you know a lot of my spare time is devoted to in, to cultivating um, the love of reading in people. And yet, my kids go through phases. The young young ones, the youngest one, has no interest in reading on 
outside of school at all. So I feel like my responsibility with her is to make sure that reading is an important part of her daily curriculum at school. I think reading is vital. And I think I need to make sure that her education includes that. As, but if she doesn't want to be a reader outside of school, I'm not going to require it. And I, I might try to facilitate it by buying some gymnastics books and leaving out for her to read, but but I'm not. It's not important to me that she be a reader as an outcome. So if we're not on the premise of needing our child to be a certain kind of person with a certain uh, category of interests, but just wanting them to be excited about life at, at all and engaged in things that are healthy for them in any way, then um, then it's just exciting to sit back and see what they choose mm -hmm. as their own personal ambitions. Okay. Uh, would you say to somebody, as people do to my wife and I, you got to okay. have kids? You got to have kids. No. And my usual, if somebody is unsure if they're going to have kids, my usual tendency is to give them all the reasons they shouldn't. Because I think you should really know you want to have kids before you do. Maybe that's not the usual uh, thing for people to say, but um, it's it's a very demanding responsibility. It's for a lifetime. And um, it's not for everybody. I think I think people it's it's become too much of a routine. Like there's the, the life routine. You go to school, you go to college, you get married, you have kids, you, you know, they're sort of the conventional path. But I think people should look much more individually at their own values and not the conventional path of how things usually happen. And kids if, if it's going to be a good experience for parents and kids alike, I think you should be confident that it's something you want to do. Um, so, yeah, that's that's my feeling about it. Okay, I've got something here. Uh, it might not be quite uh, applied to many listeners, but it's something curious in your case. Um, you're the mother of two twice, as we said. How much yeah. do you find having two older daughters, uh, Lana and Greta, helpful mm -hmm. in raising Seth and Coco? Is it something mm -hmm. like extra parents or, and I can imagine mm -hmm. as role models anyway, but how much yeah. do they have a sibling relationship versus something else? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they definitely, th that was kind of a big question in advance. Would they feel like full siblings given that they're, half siblings would would it be a different sort of relationship and then yeah what would their role be with them exactly? and i thought more because of the age more than just being the age. Half. Yeah. yeah well they, and, but the both are are relevant there so the issue of um being half siblings yeah proved to be absolutely irrelevant they they i don't even think of that most of the time and they, but it was a question in advance for everybody what would that feel like um and one of with psychological transparency that we're comfortable talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so, um, but in terms of their roles with the kids, it's definitely both. Um, they are siblings and they get to, it's sort of like the, you know, grand people always say it's great being a grandparent because you get all the joys of being a parent, but you get to hand them back. And it's so you don't have, you don't have the, all the responsibilities. And I feel like that's how it is with the older girls is they get the joys without the full responsibilities. That's what I feel um, like being an uncle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's great. It's a great role for them. Um, I like, I just like seeing, uh, to the extent that they are sort of a parental role model, it's really nice to see their influence on the kids along with mine they're going to bring a different set of talents and uh different personalities and and the little ones just get the benefit of of that from even more people who love them 
Mm-hmm. Well, the whole thing just looks really lovely from our perspective, right? So yeah. congratulations on your family. Um, I guess we'll just call it there. I mean, I have a few things, but whatever. Um, is there okay. anything else that you think is really important to get out before we go then if uh, that we haven't covered? Uh, I don't think so. No, I think we covered a lot of territory and I'm happy to come back again sometime. Uh, well, uh, that sounds uh, Sounds yeah. excellent. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you can allow me a moment just to say to listeners in a final word before you go, is that all right? Um, yeah. Listeners, if you have a question or comment about this interview, you may ask in the comment section where you're consuming now, or you may go to the Mr. Brightside Facebook page, that facebook.com slash matthewbolton.ca. You can also contact me directly at matthew.asknow at gmail.com. And of course, please share this interview with uh, any parents you know, anyone else who is interested in the future of our society's children, or just anyone you know who would enjoy hearing this. And Lisa, where should people go if they want to connect with you directly, learn more about all your stuff? Give us the whole thing. We'll, we'll lay it all out. Sure, yeah. So you can learn about the school at vandamacademy.com, V-A-N-D-A-M-M-E academy.com. Um, you, you can learn about my program for helping uh, people learn to connect intellectually and emotionally with classic literature at readwithmesalon.com. There's a program that guides, handholds people through the classics in a way that's meant to really enrich your life uh, from from reading these great works. So that's readwithmesalon.com. And um, yeah, that's, uh, if you want to know all about the kids, you follow me on Facebook. That's <laughs> Yeah, right. And it sounds like the uh, parenting podcast, Enjoy Parenting. I guess you can yes, find that. Yes, Ayn Rand Center UK. Ayn um, Rand Center UK. It's a weekly show now. Mm-hmm. All right. Sounds perfect. Well, Lisa, this has been extremely rich um, and thoroughly enjoyable for me. And I hope you've gained at least a fraction of the value I and listeners have from it. A- um, I know you're among the busiest people in the game. Got to pick your daughter. And I can't thank you enough time for making the time for us today. Thanks for having me. It's nice okay. talking to you. And uh, listeners, as parents, remember not to worry too much at each moment and to look more toward an overall trajectory of growth. And above all, heed one of Lisa's first and most important rules, pay attention so you might make the most seemingly mundane of moments into magical ones that stay with you for a decade. Enjoy parenting. I'll see you guys next time. Mr. Brightside, your time out to refresh, refuel, and refocus your mind and energy toward building an optimistic framework for flourishing. Life is good. It's up to you to choose the bright side. 